listening to a podcast from The National. The Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman is scheduled to meet Donald Trump in Washington next week. This is on the heels of a tour that included trips to London and Cairo. The U.S. trip will be an extensive one, spanning two weeks of diplomacy and outreach for the 32-year-old heir to the Saudi Kingdom. During that time, he'll hold several high-level meetings with senior defense, intelligence, and State Department officials. But his trip won't be contained to politics alone. After Washington, the Crown Prince is set to several U.S. cities to discuss economic cooperation, investments, and his Vision 2030. In New York, Boston, Houston, San Francisco, and Seattle, he's expected to meet social media pioneers and tech leaders. So how does this trip shape the young prince's foreign policy and his relationship with the rest of the world as he looks to steer the kingdom toward the future? This is Beyond the Headlines. I'm Nasr al-Wesmi. Also this week, we'll look at ISIL's resurgence in Iraq. But first, the Crown Prince's trip to the US. I asked Michael Stevens, a research fellow at the Royal United Services Institute, what he thinks the Crown Prince hopes to accomplish on this historic tour. Well, I think that there are a number of issues that the Crown Prince is going to have to address uh, when he goes to the U.S. And I think that this is actually part of a pattern in uh, terms of his relations with all major Western states, including the U.K. uh, and France as well, which is that at the moment, Western investors are a little bit wary of Saudi Arabia. They are looking at the numbers and they're not convinced uh, by a lot of the rhetoric that's coming out of the kingdom at the moment. Um, Some of the anti-corruption measures that were taken last year have made investors feel nervous. And I think what Mohammed bin Salman has to do is to try and rebuild some of that confidence, not only um, in the kingdom's financial uh, metrics and processes for becoming more transparent, but also in terms of the direction that the kingdom itself is headed and whether the fundamentals of the economy look strong and whether he can encourage and build confidence amongst those people looking to invest in a number of different projects that he's looking at, be that in the entertainment industry, in diversifying the economy into green tech, um, through education, um, building Neom, obviously this big city up on the uh, northwestern corner of Saudi Arabia. These all require gargantuan levels of investment and deep interest from particularly high-tech companies based out in California. And also, of course, you've got the the banking sector in in New York. So there's a lot of things he's got to do, and there's a lot of ground he's got to cover. And if he can do that, then I think that he will be able to come back to Riyadh uh, after two weeks and say, I've really built myself a solid foundation uh, for moving the kingdom forward and for building a solid capital base from which I can begin to invest back into the economy and move it forward in terms of diversification away from oil. This is off the heels of a trip to London. Uh, I'm just curious to know, how is he viewed in London and are there any differences in how he's perceived in Washington, for example? Well, I think the main difference between 
the way that London and, and Washington uh, view Saudi Arabia is, is that London is very, very keen to have trade partners after it leaves the European Union. And, and I think what the engagement of Mohammed bin Salman with uh, the UK was colored by was this Brexit process. So clearly there was a, a sort of political angle there from the UK, which was to say, look, we've got a strong friend and partner um, who is willing to invest £65 billion pounds or $100 billion into our economy, uh, and we will look to play a part in the way that he is changing his economy around as well. So this is a sort of mutual uh, pat on the back, which shows that everything after the Brexit process uh, means that UK is going to be a global um, trading power once again and go back to where it was in, before 50 years ago. So that has heavily coloured the dynamics um, of the trip. And that's really where I think both the Saudis and the Brits uh, were sort of signaling last week was that they were both at key turning points in their history and they could play a part in each other's economies uh, in making sure that those turning points were stable and led to increased prosperity. I think with the United States, it's a different matter. It's, it's obviously a much bigger economy than the United Kingdom. And Mohammed bin Salman really needs the United States to invest in Saudi Arabia. And the United States, of course, would like Saudi investment and, and welcomes it, but it doesn't need it in the same way um, that the United Kingdom does. There's certainly no political imperative there in the same way. Of course, it would help Donald Trump's sort of mercantilist foreign policy to have a very closely um, aligned Saudi Arabia, and he's made a lot of efforts to bring Saudi Arabia close to um, his administration. But it's not essential, and I think that it's not colored by other other issues which are going on. Um, I think where it is, it's, it's quite clear that there is a consistency between the UK and the US is, is that there are um, issues about uh, the ongoing conflict in Yemen, which have led to uh, domestic constituencies in both London and Washington, D.C. to be relatively unhappy about uh, those issues. So I think there are consistency on some issues, but there are clearly differences of approach. The one-year anniversary of the boycott of Qatar is fast approaching. June 5th, uh, 2017 is when Saudi Arabia, along with Bahrain, the UAE, and Egypt, cut ties with Doha. How prominently is this uh, topic likely to feature? Uh, did it come up at all in London? And is it likely, uh, what, where does Washington stand on that right now? The, the issue of Qatar is important, uh, but I don't think it's as important um, to either uh, London or Washington, D.C., as it was perhaps six months ago. And the reason for that is I think that, that there is an expectation now that there's a sort of pattern developing uh, between the Gulf states, which may be there for some time. Uh, and I think both the, the messaging from the UAE and Saudi Arabia and also from the Qatari side is that they're prepared to, to wait this out um, for as long as it takes until someone budges. And, and unfortunately, it looks like we're, we're in a bit of a stalemate here. Um, clearly, the Americans have shown that they want to have this problem sorted. There have been multiple um, uh, declarations that there will be a Camp David summit or a Camp David conference, um, provided that all parties are willing to make concessions. Um, but at the moment, it doesn't seem like we're anywhere near to those political conditions being met in order for a, a summit to happen. So I think in, in, in both London and Washington, who are, I would say, the 
by far and away the largest security partners in, in the Gulf for all the Gulf states. It is frustrating, but business sort of continues as usual. I think if you noticed, uh, the UK was selling typhoons to Qatar, uh, and it also has now announced a, a major typhoon deal with Saudi Arabia as well. So um, I think there has been a realization in 2018 that as long as uh, Western business interests and security architectures aren't affected, they can live with this. It's not ideal. Uh, and certainly conversations with Mohammed bin Salman um, include a resolution of the Qatar crisis. And the United States is trying to speak with one voice now. And I think that's probably the difference that you've got from this year to last year, which is that the United States really didn't speak with one voice. I think you had a circle around President Trump that was quite clearly um, wavering in its, in its position. And it was difficult to tell whether they were pro-Saudi and UAE or whether they were then pro-Qatar. And, and, and that caused some confusion, not only in the Gulf, but also amongst Western allies. I think now the State Department, the uh, Pentagon, and the White House are sort of seeing things in one view, which is that they would like this problem to be solved in an equitable fashion. Um, the question is leverage, and I'm, I'm just not sure that the U.S. has that leverage at the moment. American weapons, I mean, you mentioned that, American weapons sales to the region have increased by 25% in the last <clears throat> five years. Half of those sales are going to the Middle East. He secured a deal with London. Can we see a similar uh, weapons deal in the U.S.? I think it is likely, yes. Um, the question, I guess, from a sort of analytical point of view is what what is the need for those weapons? Um, and rightly, there were questions asked of the Qataris when they were going around buying F-15s, buying Typhoon aircraft from the UK and then Rafale aircraft um, from the French. And, and, and everybody sort of rightly said, well, this is a small country. How is it going to operate all these complicated weapon systems? And I think in some ways we are reverting back to a time more reminiscent of the 1980s where it was less clear what the strategic benefit of some of these weapon sales were, and it was more clear that there were political considerations driving these defense sales. I absolutely think um, that there will be a defense sales component to the U.S. visit. I strongly suspect that that will involve aircraft, um, and particularly fast jets. I would imagine something along the lines also of electronic warfare and missile defense systems. I think one of the things that Saudi Arabia has been threatened by in particular are the Scud missiles emanating from Yemen. Um, there need to be conversations about how to build a more robust missile defense architecture down in the south of the country. And the U.S. absolutely has that um, area um, uh, under lock and key. They control all missile defense sales to the kingdom at the moment. I know there have been discussions uh, about the Russians potentially getting involved with the S-400 systems, but I think the United States would want to make a statement and want to make a commitment to Saudi Arabia, which included those kind of aspects. So I expect to see um, more sales coming. I expect to see the reflection of a warming relationship between Saudi Arabia and the U.S. being defined by a potentially big defense sale. I mean, the very nature of this visit is different. He's expected to go to Silicon Valley, to go to Seattle, uh, to meet with tech company CEOs. A lot of these people, um, I mean, like Steve Jobs, they had a cult following. They're considered young and tech savvy. Part of this is to progress investments in, vision, in his vision 2030. But how much of this is also to curry the favor of Americans to change the perception of Saudi Arabia in the U.S.? 
Oh, for sure there's an element of that. Uh, there's no doubt that there's a bit of public diplomacy going on. Um, uh, Crown Prince Mohammed wants to be seen as a modernizing force that's interested in pushing his country forward with the latest available technologies, opening the kingdom up to the world um, through increased, you know, driving uh, into the high-tech sector. Um, and absolutely, I mean, you, you've seen this before, you know, he seems to be good friends with Mark Zuckerberg, for example. Um, I think he's quite inspired by the work of Elon Musk. So th these sorts of things absolutely are on his radar, not only for public diplomacy purposes, I think he quite enjoys them. And I think he sees Saudi Arabia as being a future um, tech hub in the region that could partner as, as a sort of, uh, if you like, Arabian Silicon Valley. But it's, I think if Saudi Arabia is to make this transition um, through Vision 2030 away from oil and gas um, successfully, I think he, he, he absolutely needs the support of these types of companies. I think it's unlikely, uh, for example, that you're going to be seeing Saudi Arabia taking um, um, blue-collar work from Western countries. No, it'll be high-tech sector work. I think this is the area where he knows that Saudi Arabians will be engaged in. They'll be excited to work in these areas. They absolutely will then open up job opportunities for young Saudis, and that will allow Vision 2030 to move forward. So there's a domestic consideration here, I think, and he's really serious about that. And absolutely, you know, it, it, it is good to be seen with people like Mark Zuckerberg. It makes you look modern and it makes you look like you are the future. Uh, and certainly if Saudi Arabia is to sort of change its image in the world, this is the kind of way uh, that Crown Prince Mohammed uh, should be doing it and has been doing it on previous trips to the United States. Prime Minister Haider al-Abadi claimed the defeat of ISIL in 2017. But this week, we've had dozens of deaths claimed by the terrorists. The group has taken a different form after destroying vast swaths of the country. Campbell McDarmon is in Iraq covering for the National a resurgence of ISIL around the country. He told us what he perceives as the new phase in the battle. We saw back in December Abadi declaring final victory over ISIL um, in terms of having um, recaptured uh, areas of Iraq that were under um, their control. But no one really thought that would mean the end of the group, um, you know, as, as a force in Iraq. And, you know, Abadi acknowledged uh, as much when he said, you know, that the fight against terrorism would be ongoing. And in fact, a lot of people were predicting that once um, ISIL was no longer, um, I guess, distracted by defending territory, they would have um, you know, they would be concentrating more on insurgent-style tactics like what we've seen, um, you know, most recently in the past week or so around um, Kirkuk, but uh, for the past couple of years also in uh, Salahuddin, uh, Diyala, places like that. So is this a territorial problem? Are ISIL sleeper cells appearing in some parts of the country and not others? Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, the areas you tend to see them in at the moment, as I understand it, obviously not sheer majority areas. And you're not really seeing huge amounts of activity in, uh, you know, totally Sunni uh, Anbar, for example. Um, where you are seeing them active is in uh, these kind of um, mixed ethnicity areas, um, like Kirkuk province, where there's traditionally been some kind of sectarian uh, tensions. But I think that the main areas where there have been 
able to um, get refuge is in these quite um, remote rural areas, places like Hawija, the Hamrin Mountains, where you have hundreds of remote villages, um, quite quite wide distances. These are places that the uh, Iraqi government has never really been able to effectively control and police. Um, and in the case of places like Hawija, they also haven't been in there for, you know, um, three years or so. But even before that, you know, it was kind of a, you know, federal government control was always limited. Um, so ISIL sleeper cells are able to operate in these areas quite freely, um, move within villages, intimidate villages into, um, if not accepting their presence, then acquiescing to their presence because, you know, the alternative is, you know, leave or, or face, you know, serious consequences. Um, and so what, one of the, what we're seeing um, a lot of the attacks on is, is the, uh, the Kirkuk-Baghdad road, which passes through some of these quite um, remote areas that are not well policed. And um, in the past couple of weeks, I sort of... Uh, set up checkpoints on the road in the nighttime with the goal of attacking military um, units, but also, you know, uh, anyone they sort of perceive as, you know, not not with them. So ambushes, hit-and-run attacks, um, you know, as well as the, uh, the, the, the usual things they've used in the past, like IEDs and, um, you know, bombings, targeted assassinations. So there's been quite quite a number of these, particularly in the last week, and it does seem to be something of an uptick. Is the clash between Kurdistan and uh, the Iraqi government a cause for concern in their battle to claim uh, control of the liberated areas? I mean, I certainly think that's something that ISIL is probably looking at um, for ways they can exploit that. Um, you know, if they could stoke those kind of tensions... I guess they would see that as potentially beneficial for them. Um, but the other way I think it's, it's affecting the situation perhaps more directly is that um, after, you know, so you know obviously that in um, late last year, Iraqi federal forces took control of uh, a lot of the areas which are just in the disputed territories, you know, disputed between the Kurdistan regional government and the federal government that the Kurds have been controlling some of it since 2014, like Kirkuk and the adjacent oil fields where the federal forces fled um, ahead of ISIL's advance, but also some areas that the Kurds have controlled for you know a decade or more. Um, so when the Kurds withdrew and the Iraqi forces moved in, you know they were in a in a way kind of starting from scratch in terms of knowing the lay of the land and, you know, building relationships within the community. And the other big factor, I think, for the Iraqi forces is that they're quite stretched. Um, you know, a lot of the units lost large numbers of men in the battle for Mosul. And, you know, now they're um, they're policing, you know, wider areas. You know, the, the Syrian border area is obviously difficult um, for them to contain. And, you know, they've... So they're stretched thin, and they're they're also relying, in because of that, on um, PMU forces, popular mobilization units, which are predominantly Shia, and so the their reliance on 
on uh, Shia forces in, in mixed ethnicity or Sunni areas is obviously has the potential to, you know, it's a sensitive issue and has the potential to kind of um, inflame sectarian tensions. So as we see that's ISIL... something that ISIL will look to, you know, exploit. So as we see ISIL uh, shift from, or we see the battle against ISIL shift from a, a traditional military campaign to more of a sleeper cell insurgency issue... It stops becoming a concern of the Iraqi military and more that of the Iraqi intelligence services. So, are yeah, they I, are they up to the task? I think you know you're correct in in, in that assessment. Um, what would I say about that? You know, I, what analysts are saying now is that it's really important for the Iraqi security forces to be investing in countering terror counterterrorism and counterinsurgency strategies you know so you know people are saying you know they shouldn't be investing in you know heavy heavy weapons and jets and and uh, and uh, tanks and that kind of thing and really kind of focusing on on the, the kind of nitty-gritty of, of how you build intelligence networks and how you root out sleeper cells the resources that were expended fighting ISIL in the traditional military campaign or we saw it over 2017 uh, in Mosul and whatnot, can those military units be uh, used to deal with this insurgency? Well, I think, you know, what you saw, and particularly with the battle for Mosul, but a lot of the other um, battles across, and uh, you know, Ramadi, Fallujah, was a really heavy reliance on the uh, ISAF, the uh, Iraqi Special Forces. You know, the Golden Division was the, the most... Uh, famous units from that, but, you know, there are others. And they were traditionally set up as a counterterrorism force, um, but because they were the most highly trained, um, professional, non-sectarian forces that the uh, Iraqis had available to them, you know, when a lot of the other, you know, traditional military units kind of uh, ran away or dissolved, you know, for whatever reasons, when ISIL advanced, it came down to them to do a lot of the the ground fighting against um, against ISIL, and they were very they were very effective. Um, you know, they were the most professional force, but it wasn't what they had been designed to do. Um, and they also suffered really high casualty rates. And you know, you'll never get an announcement about how many were killed in the battle against ISIL, but. Um, in one U.S. State Department document where they were talking about, you know, funding for uh, helping rebuild Iraqi forces, they mentioned that, you know, these units had suffered up to, you know, 40-50% casualty rates. And you hear rumors of even higher figures than that, which are extraordinarily high um, figures that, you know, ordinarily would be considered high enough to render units combat ineffective. Um and the problem with re, you know, rebuilding these forces is it's that you know it's, it's not something you can do overnight with a six-week boon, um, you know, boot camp training. Um, you know, these these were forces that had uh, many of them had been trained by the Americans both here and in Jordan. Um, some of them had traveled to the U.S. for training, so they were really highly specialized forces, um, and they're not easily replaced. Um, so what we're seeing at the moment is you know reliance on popular mobilization forces. And, you know, they're not uniquely um, Shia paramilitary groups. You know, you have you have Sunni 
PMU units in uh, in, Mosul, in in Nineveh and elsewhere, um, but they obviously don't have the same level of training, and they don't tend, in my experience of of seeing how they operate, they don't tend to be particularly proactive. So you have them manning checkpoints and stuff, but you don't see as much of the kind of uh, patrolling and, and such. So you might expect to see if you were taking a proactive approach to try and you know, root out a, uh, a potentially budding insurgency. I'd like to thank my guests Michael Stevens and Campbell McDarmon for joining me on the show. I'd also like to thank my producer, Kevin Jeffers. You can find this and all the other national podcasts such as Extra Time and Business Extra on Apple Podcasts or your favorite app. I've been your host, Nasr al Thank you for listening and goodbye.